starting a new little series today. So we're going to jump into the book of Exodus. I don't know how far we'll get through it. We might just do a bit of it and then do some other stuff and then come back to it because it might take us the rest of the year if we did the whole lot in one go. So we're just going to have a bit of a taster of uh, Exodus, I think, is what we'll do. But we'll see how long it goes for. So um, first question I have for you is, who likes to have things delivered to their house? Anyone do a bit of online ordering? Yeah, see a few eager hands go up. What sorts of things do you get delivered? Yep, that's a good one. Chrissy and birthday presents. Pizza. Do, do, tell me, do you get pizza delivered to your house? No, you used to in, when, in Wagga, but not, not here. <laughs> well, I'll thermomix things. Okay. Oh dear. Your vitamins delivered. That's a good one. Any? Oh, clothes. Yes. Clothes delivered. And food. Anyone get their groceries delivered? Coles online or something? That comes under food. Okay, yeah, we've got, we've got a food delivery lady, lunchies, yeah. Uh, I attempted to do a, um, actually I had two grocery orders yesterday. I did one with Coles and one with Woolies, you know, just to compare, because Woolies now delivers out here. I sound like I'm giving a plug, I'm not sponsored by Coles or Woolies. Um, but, but Coles delivered okay, but you know, Woolies, they rerouted my time, and I wasn't going to be home, and I wasn't happy about that. So I had to ring them, and they are now delivering on Tuesday. Anyway, just as well my groceries weren't urgent. <laughs> uh, Steve's a bit of a fan of the old uh, online ordering. What, what do you like to order, Steve? eBay. eBay. Anything eBay is, is Steve's. And it'll come in little, little parcels about three or four times a week we get a delivery. <laughs> I was accosted in the um, Sturt Mall yesterday by um, Foods. Has anyone been in Wagga in the last few days and get accosted by the U Food sales reps? They are aggressive, aren't they? They were to me. <laughs> okay, maybe I just didn't look assertive enough or something. And um, I, I knew they wouldn't deliver to Coolerman and tried to tell them that, um, and that I'd never use them even if they did. And, and I, I went and had a look online um, afterwards, and you know, you can get you can get U Foods to deliver you sandwiches. Now. I think if you haven't got time, and, and these are gourmet sandwiches, all right? Gourmet ham, cheese, and tomato sandwiches, all right? Yeah, yeah. If you've got time to order a sandwich online and be home to receive the delivery, but you don't have time to make a ham, cheese, and tomato sandwich, I, I don't know what's wrong with, with this world. There's, there's something strange. But anyway, look, the idea with delivery is that you get something, don't you? You get something desirable. You possibly also get ripped off from time to time. But, you know, you're happy about it, aren't you? Because it's come to your door. It's right there for you. But I want to compare the idea of delivery, which is you getting something, with the idea of deliverance. Do you know what deliverance is? Yeah, deliverance. It's freedom from something that hinders or opposes or oppresses or overwhelms you. So something actually gets taken away. So delivery, you get something. Deliverance, something is taken away. So, for example, you get a, a delivery of groceries to your home and you then need deliverance from all the plastic and packaging that's now in your house, okay? So that's, that's how the, the, the two words vary. So what else besides packaging do you think our world needs deliver, deliverance from, delivering from? What else? Um, is there any sort of oppression across our planet, do you think? Yeah, that is, like where do you look? Where do you start? 
What are some of the things that stop us from being fully human in this world? Like we're made to, to, to bear the image of God and we're made to reflect God's image into this world. And what is it that stops us doing that? Uh, and we could name it, couldn't we? Almost any, anywhere we look, war, famine, greed, corruption, violence... It doesn't take much of a YouTube or a um, Google to, to find examples of oppression in our planet, does it? Uh, Yemen at the moment, 14 million people are on the brink of, of famine. There's the refugee crisis in Syria, 6.3 million refugees. Afghanistan, 2.6 million refugees. South Sudan, 2.4 million refugees, and, and more and more and more. The world is a place of, of oppression. You know, there are more than 45 million children, men and women in slavery today. 45 million. You know, and, and they're, they're the, you know, the, the naked six-year-old boy on a, on a fishing boat in Ghana. They're a bonded labourer at a brick kiln who's never left the factory. They're the 14-year-old girl locked behind a door in a brothel, uh, suffering a dozen customers a day. And then, of course, on Friday, we had the mass shooting in New Zealand, didn't we? 50 people dead. The world is a place of oppression. And uh, from the beginning, we see that God's good creation has been corrupted and enslaved. Enslaved by evil and sin and idolatry. And, you know, they're big words, but, but basically all that means is, you know, humanity has chosen to worship and honour themselves above God. Humanity has decided, you know, we know how to run, run the ship, we know how to run things, uh, and we'll do it without you, God, thank you very much. And humanity, we've, we've decided we can't trust God, that he has our best interests at heart. And, you know, we've entered into a deal with the, the enemy of humanity, the evil one who would try and enslave us and hold us captive from all the good and creative and beautiful potential and possibility that comes with being made in the image of God, that comes with being human. And, and of course, that's the story of Genesis 1 to 3, isn't it? It's a sobering story, isn't it? And it's the story that plays out through the whole Bible and that story continues to play out today in nations, in governments, in organisations, in media, in homes, in families, in our own lives. Do we need a deliverer? Do we need a deliverer? You bet this world does. You know, the, the, the world's problems aren't going to be fixed with Uber Eats delivery, are they? or the tracking of your pizza delivery. You know, being able to order anything from eBay or Amazon and have it shipped to your front door, or having your groceries delivered to your kitchen bench, you know what, it's rather handy. But it's not gonna rescue the world from the evil and the idolatry and the sin that it faces itself in. We need a deliverer who will rescue our world and from all the things that corrupt and break it the things that mar the image of God in us, the things that stop us living free and whole lives under the rule and reign of the God who made us. And you know what? God promises to be that deliverer. God promises to provide all that's needed for us to live in his image as his people, to provide all that's needed for us to flourish. Do you know that? Is that true? Does God promise to provide all we need to flourish as human beings? Yeah. 
Every book of the Bible contains a promise, God's promises to deliver us. Throughout the whole Bible. Yet, you know, we, we continue to live in this tension, don't we, between hearing the promises of God and, and, and on one hand and then seeing the overwhelming and the destructive forces around us that seem to threaten that promise. We start to doubt. Sometimes those overwhelming and destructive forces, they're quite far removed from us. But I think it's really important, isn't it, that we stop and allow ourselves to be agitated by the brokenness and the oppression that exists across the globe today. Because we can get pretty comfortable here in our country. We, we must all long for real justice and freedom to be enacted across all of creation. The world needs a deliverer. Often, though, those overwhelming and destructive forces, they come and impact us very personally. Relationships, you know, tension, arguing, selfishness, complaining, disagreements. Perhaps our work, you know, our daily life and responsibilities feels more like an experience of slavery than a celebration of all that God has made us to be. Perhaps our home, you know, maybe we have uh, financial needs that cause stress and difficulty. Perhaps our health, there's pain, sickness, impediments that stop you living a full and meaningful life. Maybe you have trauma or grief, things that have happened to you or to loved ones. Um, and, and this trauma causes a darkness in your soul and in your mind. Do you need a deliverer? Do you need a deliverer? God promises to deliver his good creation from sin and evil. And you know that. But how do we live when it looks like he's forgotten his promises? Is he forgetful or is he faithful? Do you ever wonder if God has forgotten you? Do you ever wonder if God has forgotten his promises to you? I think that's the question that often lurks in the background of many people's minds. And I think it's a question that the Israelites faced at the time of Moses. And so we're going to have a look at the story of Moses in the book of Exodus. And we're going to see how God's covenant promises to his people are also the promises to us today. And we're going to look at how to have faith in a faithful God when, when the situation where others face seems hopeless and God seems to have forgotten. And you know, not only does God promise to deliver his good creation from sin and evil, he calls us to be a people who outwork that deliverance on his behalf. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually a new king came into power into Egypt, who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, 
The people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from this country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They pointed a brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labour. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses as supply centres for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Sifrath and Puah. When you help their Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders and they allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to his tall people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. I must confess, the only bit in that story that actually really stands out to me is the bit about the Hebrew women having babies quickly. And I think, oh, that's amazing. How do they do that? (laughs) That's a good thing. So about 400 years has passed now since Joseph and his family came to live in Egypt. And that's, that's where the book of Exodus opens. And they'd started with about 70 people. And they've now multiplied and they've, they've filled Egypt. And at the time of the Exodus, the Bible says there are about 600,000 men. So if you add to that women and children, that uh, could mean about 2 million people in this country. That's... That's a lot of multiplication, isn't it? 70 to 2 million. So they, they really are thriving as, as a tribe and as a people. Now, if you, you know much about Genesis, you, you'll be aware of the fact that in Genesis, God has entered into a, a special relationship or agreement called a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is, of course, the forefather of all the Israelites who are now living in Egypt. And uh, the, the Israelite tribe has descended from Abraham as a result of God's promised blessing to them. And the tribe has become large just as God promised them that they would. So if we had a look in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, we see some of these covenant promises that God made to Abraham. So Genesis chapter 12, 2 says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Genesis chapter 15, 5 says, He took him, as in Abraham, outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then Genesis 17, verse 2, 
God says, then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase your numbers. So you can see that the, the covenant promises are, are coming true, aren't they? They have been fruitful and, and they are multiplying. And we could even go right back to Genesis 1.28 where God gives, a, uh, I guess, a, a creation mandate, a special uh, command to, to all of humanity. And God blesses us and, and says to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So God's plan for creation for his people is for us to thrive for us to grow and for us to flourish upon the earth. And so we start Exodus on a high note, don't we? Yeah, God, you're blessing your people just like you said you would. It's all going well. It's all going to plan. Hallelujah. I just love it when things are going just how you think they should go. And it's easy to trust God when things are going to plan, isn't it? Things rapidly go downhill for the Israelites with the arrival of a new king who has no knowledge about what Joseph has done and the service Joseph gave the nation. And he sees the Israelites as a threat, doesn't he? And he says, well, I know what we'll do. We'll make them slaves. And so he oppresses them. And um, he, he, he subdues these people by taking away their, their power and their dignity as people. And I think oppression has as much to do with um, uh, physical restriction and limitation of physical freedom as it does with sort of a psychological enslavement. So being a slave is not just about a restriction of your physical freedom, but it's also about dehumanising people, dealing with people in a way that they feel helpless and hopeless, that they feel like second-class or substandard citizens, people. And so they become people who don't fight their slavery, who don't try and create, uh, don't try and escape or create an uprising because, you know, they've been brainwashed to believe, this is who I am. I'm just a slave. This is what I deserve. And they are, are, are worthless and they feel powerless because they feel they deserve it. And so slavery is as much about a loss of identity as it is about the physical restriction on someone's life. And I wonder if you ever experienced that sort of slavery. You know where your identity is attacked in such a way that, that you feel worthless, that you feel helpless, that you feel hopeless. Of course, the flip side of this is sometimes we can treat others in, in a way that makes them feel subhuman, that makes them feel worthless, helpless and hopeless. You know, we can be demanding and harsh and critical and judgmental. We can be controlling and overbearing. And it happens, doesn't it, in families, in workplaces, in schools. You know, any way of interacting with other people that restricts or, or, or puts a dampener on, on their personhood, on their identity, on, on you know, their unique self and, and their interests and their needs, their plans and their hopes and their dreams, that's oppression. That is oppression, and that's not God's way. It is the way of evil, however. And, of course, Pharaoh in this story sees a bit of economic benefit to his nation by forcing the Israelites to be his labourers and build store cities. What happened, though? What happened? Something very interesting happened. You know, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. How weird's that? That doesn't make sense. 
the more they were oppressed, the stronger God's people got. And uh, this is one of those remarkable things. God's people, his church, flourish under persecution. You think about the New Testament church. They did well under persecution. They spread. They grew. Think about the Chinese church today. Flourishing under persecution. Uh, you can think about churches across uh, in Africa and other places. You know, God's people become fruitful and multiply despite oppression. Now, it's not that God needs persecution to see his plans outworked. That's, that's not what's going on here. It's that God has given his people a command to, to be fruitful and to multiply. And you know what? Come what may, that will happen. Because God has said that it should happen and he will see that it happens. You know, Jesus says, I will build my church and, and hell and evil will not stop me. So it doesn't matter what opposition you face. It doesn't matter what persecution you face. If God says this will happen, then, well, it's going to happen, isn't it? I wonder what areas of restriction or opposition do you face? What areas of restriction or opposition do you face? What areas of restriction or opposition do we as a church or God's people face? Might it be, might it be that these are the areas that you'll be exceedingly fruitful in? That you will grow all the more stronger in despite that opposition? You know, I've seen that happen in my life. You know, my areas of, of weakness and oppression have become my areas of strength and victory. That's what God does. Think about, think about our nation at the moment. Think about um, the things that have been under attack in our society. And that there's two that come to mind for me, marriage and children. Now, my desire and hope is that God will show his power and authority and cause those areas of ministry to flourish in churches. Now think about marriage. Now what if traditional Christian marriages were to grow stronger and see an increase in the time when the concept of marriage is being challenged? Where divorce is so, so common to the point of normal. Like what if that was to become our strength? And what about ministry to children? You know, governments and, and critics, they want to erode scripture in schools. And there's, of course, a lot going on in relation to child abuse and the church. What if, despite evil, what if, despite evil, God's plans flourish? God's people flourish and God's purpose flourishes. Is that possible? Yes, of course it's possible. You know, these are two areas that I'd like us in faith to sow into as individuals and as a church, that that we might really invest into these two areas. Invest in your marriages. Invest in, in ministry to children. Invest in your families. You know, because they seem to be the two areas that the enemy is most threatened by because they're the areas that cause the most instability in our society. No one wants to see a marriage fall apart. It's tough. It hurts. No one wants to see children broken and abused. 
I wonder, I wonder if these will be the two areas that the church finds the greatest areas of breakthrough in in the coming generations. You know, that's my hope. I want to say thank you to all those people who are already investing in those areas. And especially those who do it in the context of our church. You know, we've got mainly music, we've got fusion, we've got kids' church, we've got creation. You know, every week we've got people who sacrifice their, their Wednesday mornings, their Friday nights or other times to invest in children and youth. You know, we've got kids' camp out coming up. Thank you to those who are giving up their weekend to invest in children. Thank you to those who are on Sunday rosters so that children are built up in the faith and in the word. And I encourage you in your personal life, in your prayer life, in your, your finances, in your time, invest into things that build up marriages and build up children. And then you will see the kingdom of God come to rule and reign in those areas. And I want to say to you, if you have a particular heart for these areas, if you, if you have some ideas or thoughts, if you have some areas of need, come and talk to me. I want to hear from you. You know, because not only does God promise to deliver his good creation from sin and evil, he calls us to be a people who outwork this deliverance on his behalf. And, and you know, we'll see that as we step through the story of Moses in coming weeks. We'll see how God calls us to be his deliverers. On his behalf. Let's go back to the story, back to Exodus 1. So we've got the Israelites, they're doing well, they're being oppressed, but, but, but they're still doing okay, they're, they're still multiplying. And they're put into forced labor, but they do even better to the point that the Egyptians dreaded them. And so they worked them even, even harder. And the word there that's used is ruthlessly. They worked them ruthlessly. And that's a, that's a word that kind of means you know, brutal, violent, and severe work. It's harsh labor. It's not good, meaningful, satisfying work that we're designed for as human beings. This is the sort of labor that dehumanizes people. <clears throat> Evil really likes to undermine our identity as human beings, doesn't it? You know, we're created with dignity and value and worth of being the image bearers of God and, and, and we're put here as stewards in God's world. It's a pretty high calling we have, isn't it? And so anything that turns human beings into a commodity, into something to be mistreated or um, exploited, these are works of evil and they're to be resisted. And um, as I was writing this, I, I stopped and, uh, and I started to think, you know, I wonder, I wonder if some of the choices I make actually help to turn people into commodities and, and actually help to um, I- exploit people. You know, when, when you think about some of our, our clothing purchases some of the purchases of um, toys or food that are made overseas in, in sweatshops in developing nations. You know, the working life of, of people in those places is little more than slavery. But we, we, we happily buy those things, don't we, in our Western nations. The work they're doing is mundane and oppressive. There's minimal payment for it. It's dehumanising. And I wonder... To what extent I'm supporting that by the choices I make? It's worth thinking about. 
So in Exodus 1, when, when afflicting the adults didn't work, so they kept on multiplying, Pharaoh decides to attack the children. So when oppressing the adults didn't work, he decides to attack the children. And he puts a bit of birth control in place. And he asks the midwives to kill all the boys born to Israelite women. So he's, he's trying his hand at a bit of genocide here. Genocide's kind of popular with evil dictators, isn't it? Now, these, these two women here, these head midwives, these are God-fearing women and they outsmart Pharaoh. With all Pharaoh's power and influence and control, he's no match for these two midwives. And they, they tell Hebrew, you know what? Um, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Plot foiled. I wonder, for us in our life today, do, do you ever see other people who seem to have all the influence and all the power and all the charisma and they have all the connections and they have all the authority and they're louder and they're bossier and they're more significant than you? And you think, well, who am I to change this world? Who am I to go against evil? To go against what is wrong. You know what, what I want to say to you? Never underestimate the power of quiet obedience to God. Of just being who you are, where you are, and um, having a significant impact in the world. Just by being you. These two midwives here, they're not well-known heroes of the Bible, are they? But what a big difference they've made just by honouring God and saying no to evil and being faithful to God in their sphere of influence, in their daily calling and in their daily work. And so I think the lesson for us is to just be quietly faithful in your daily work and your daily calling. We don't need to be significant. We don't need to be powerful in the way the world sees power. Just be obedient to God in your everyday life. And you'll make a significant difference to God's world and God's people. You might never be fully aware of the long-term um, difference that, that your faithful obedience is making. That's okay, isn't it? Just keep doing what God has called you to do. Just keep doing it. So back in Exodus, um, <clears throat> Pharaoh's genocide plan A is a fail. So he goes for genocide plan B. Who knows that when you're an evil dictator, you kind of need to have a few genocide backup plans in case the first one doesn't work. You know, you want to make sure you're successful there. Um, genocide plan B is quite simple. Chuck the kids into the Nile River. It's not complicated, is it? And um, chapter 1 of Exodus ends with this rising tension. Despite the resiliency and the, the fruitfulness of the Hebrews, the threat against them is increasing. They are suffering. They've been persecuted. They've been killed. They've been worked brutally. They've been treated as subhuman. They are slaves and they need deliverance. Will God deliver his people is the question that sort of hangs in tension at the end of Exodus 1. Is he a God who is faithful or forgetful? Will the covenant he made be kept or will he fail his people? Now, it's, it's easy to sit in our comfy chairs, and they are comfy chairs, aren't they? They're comfy chairs. Are you comfy? Yep. 
unless you're in the back row. You know that we deliberately put the back row chairs as the bad ones to encourage people to sit in these front ones. You know that, don't you? Yeah, yeah? We might reckon we need to get lounge chairs in this front row here. Hey? I don't think so. Recliners. Recliners. Let's get on to that. I, I agree. A slushy machine. A slushy machine. All the kids will be up the front then, won't they? <laughs> You know, it's easy to sit in these comfy chairs with our slushy and our recliner, all right, in our nice air-conditioned hall and our, our urn and our, our tea bags and to say, you know what, God's not going to fail us. God is faithful. God doesn't forget. But I tell you what, I suspect if we were sitting in a Nazi concentration camp, you know, we might ask a few questions about God's faithfulness. If we were experiencing famine in Yemen, we, we might wonder a bit, has God forgotten me? Hey, I'm hungry, God. <laughs> Where's my slushy? If we'd had our baby boy murdered by the state, we, we might wonder if God is keeping his covenant with us. Will God deliver us? Of course, the answer is yes, then and now. If we snuck forward into Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 to 9, it says this, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. You know, he's concerned about your suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious place, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzites, the Hivites, the Jezebites, and then the old joke, of course, is the Vegemites as well. Um, and, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God acting repeatedly to deliver his people from evil, whether it be their own poor choices, whether it be violence or oppression or idolatry. And so throughout the Old Testament, God raises up men and women and leaders and prophets and priests and kings who all become part of God's plan for the deliverance of his people. Of course, Moses is a, is a foretaste of God's plan to bring full freedom from slavery to all of the human race, freedom from slavery to sin, freedom to be fruitful in this world, freedom to, to see and know God, freedom to enjoy God, freedom to worship God, to know God's favor, freedom to live in the land and be productive and creative and enjoy the fruits of our work. God's ultimate plan is to rescue his world from sin and oppression, and that rescue plan is found in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the one who is anointed and called to announce freedom to the oppressed. And when we think about the things that this world needs deliverance from, or the things that we ourselves need deliverance from, we know that God has made a way to freedom. And that way is Jesus. <clears throat> I think sometimes, though, we, we, can, we confuse Jesus with a pizza delivery man or the Australia Post parcel lady, don't we? Don't we? 
think I need to explain that a bit, don't I? You're a bit confused. Okay? You know, you're thinking, oh, hang on a net. I, I rarely get Jesus confused with the Australia Post parcel lady. Like, like she's in her 50s. Jesus is kind of in his 30s. He's got a beard. She rings my doorbell. Jesus lives in my heart. No, I'm not getting them confused in it. We think often that the purpose of Jesus is to bring us stuff that we want that will make our life more comfortable, more exciting, or more interesting. He's our cosmic, supernatural parcel person. And he brings us presents and, and stuff. He delivers for us. And our, our faith becomes about what Jesus will do for us, what he'll give to us. Now, I, I'm not saying that God doesn't generously give and bless us in many ways, physical ways, spiritual ways, psychological ways. No, I've experienced that. He does do that. Uh, my life is so much better and fuller because of Jesus. And I'm sure I could get you to give personal testimonies about that. But all of that is, that's just from the overflow. That's not the primary point of Jesus. The point of God's rescue, or we could use another word, salvation, the point of salvation is not delivery, it's deliverance. Delivery is getting something brought to us that we want. Deliverance is gaining freedom from something that oppresses us. And you know what? When we're stuck in our old sinful nature, the stuff we want will rarely be good for us or this world. It would be a disaster if Jesus was just our cosmic parcel delivery person, bringing us everything that we think would be good. It's only when we are set free from, from selfishness and from sin and we're given new eyes to, to see and a new heart to, to start to want the things that align with God's will and with what God wants and with, with what is actually good and right and helpful. Jesus delivers us from this old nature, the corrupted, all-about-me nature that, that rules each one of us from birth. You know that nature that thinks, I, I know best, I know best, I want what I want and, and no one should get in my way. You know, our, our sinful nature causes us to be a, a slave to sin and to turn away from God. Sin becomes our master and ruler. Sin is our pharaoh. Sin is our pharaoh and, and we live under its rule and we're oppressed and we're enslaved and you know what, sin is a hard taskmaster. Sin is ruthless to us. Sin makes our life bitter. Sin is death. There's, there's no life in sin. But deliverance is found in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The great hope that we have as Christians is that one day Jesus will return and will bring justice and an end to oppression and suffering, and he will make all things new and right. God's deliverance plan began 2,000 years ago with Jesus at the cross, and it continues today with his Holy Spirit at work in the church. And it will come to full completion sometime in the future. God is our deliverer. You can look to him for the freedom you need. It is a freedom that will confront the evil and sin that is at work in your life. It is a freedom that will enable you to know God and it's a freedom that will enable you to live with blessing in his land. God is the source of all you need to flourish. You can trust him for that. 
Just as God was faithful to the Israelites at the time of Moses, he will be faithful to you today. So if you think, well, God's, God's forgotten me. He's passed me over in his plans. Somehow I've been left out of his purposes. Somehow it feels like he, he doesn't care about me or is concerned for me and the stuff I'm facing. Uh, you know, as we, as we journey through Exodus, I want you to see that God is not forgetful. He is faithful. And not only does he bring deliverance for you, he calls, we'll see how he calls people to be his partners in this deliverance. I want you to know that even under persecution and suffering, you can grow and become exceedingly fruitful. So let's trust him in that. You know, we're delivered from sin and we're delivered for something. We're not just in a holding pattern waiting for heaven, are we? Waiting for those harps. <laughs> what are you delivered for? What, what are you delivered for? we go back to Genesis and, and look at the, the covenant that God made, it says that, that all people on earth will be blessed through you. You know, you're delivered for a purpose. I wonder, how has God uniquely made you to be a blessing, to be his blessing in this world? We're going to move into communion now, and, and I want you to think about some of this stuff. As, as we celebrate communion together. And we're going to play a, a song, a video, and you, you'll get the, the elements. And I just want you to, in your own time, to spend some time with, with God, just processing some of this stuff. What has he delivered you from? What, what do you need delivering from? What has he delivered you to? In what ways has he called you to be a blessing in the world? And so as, as this song plays, just spend some time thinking and reflecting and praying on your own. And then when you're ready, just take the, the, the bread and the juice in your own time. And I'm not going to pray to close. I'm just going to let you just spend some quiet time with God. The song goes for about five minutes. So whatever point you're finished, just feel free to quietly get up and... and move to the tea and coffee area, okay? So I'm not going to get up again. I'm just going to leave you for some, some quiet time with God, okay? Um, if you did want prayer about any of the things that are, have been raised in here or anything else, then come and see me or grab someone else from the church. We'd love to pray with you about, about any of the things that are on your heart, okay?